Live from Montana and Oklahoma, this is the EdTech Situation Room. Um, my name is Jason Neifer. I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the State Virtual School in fabulous Missoula, Montana. Um, and I'm also the NCCE Tech Ed Savvy Administrator. And this is Episode 11 of the EdTech Situation Room. Joining me, as always, is Dr. Wesley Fryer. Good evening, Wes. Good evening. I am happy that we're not getting severe weather here. It just seems to be the... I heard the director of the National Weather Center here uh, here in Norman talk today because um, he has a child at our school, and he showed the graph of tornadoes in Oklahoma. And yes, May was you know hitting the hitting the ceiling. So it's been an exciting exciting month. There's probably more to come. And uh, I am the director of technology at Cassidy School. Thrilled to be here with the Yoda of EdTech News, Jason Knife. <laughs> Well, let's see if I could bring uh, any Yodaness to the, the situation room tonight. So that would be the Yoda who has not seen Yoda. So we learned yeah, that last yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, <laughs> and we're doing sharing facts about ourselves each time, right? So um, I'll right. go ahead and start. Okay. Um, I'm heading off to Canada this weekend um, for the long weekend, and um, I'm excited to get out of town. My wife and I are going to just take a little road trip and head over the border. We're about four, eh, three hours away from the Canadian border here in Missoula. And so we're going to uh, head to um, southern BC um, in uh, or for the for the long weekend. So we're excited to be getting out of town. Awesome, that is great. And uh, my my personal fact will just be that uh, my wife and I celebrated our twentieth wedding anniversary uh, yesterday, and our son graduated from high school on Tuesday. So it is a momentous momentous week. And by the way, I did enjoy the uh, 1990s West photos you posted on Facebook. So it's like, oh, look, it's 90s West. So yeah, well, the the photo albums are are right down here. And truth be told, I couldn't find our wedding pictures. We never made an album with our wedding pictures. My wife's like, yeah, they're in a shoebox. So yeah, and people, she said tonight, people didn't recognize her because because her hair is now gray. So anyway, yes. <laughs> I don't think I got in too much trouble putting those pictures, but there's there's there are so, there's a number of photos in these albums I could put online that would probably you know discredit myself as as well as others. So yeah, I'm there. You go. Kind of those those are. Our, uh, sorry, did, did, I'm kind of glad did, I didn't go to college during the Facebook era. So because I there are a lot of photos of me back then right. that I'm glad are staying somewhere in the analog world. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. So for those of you joining us, we uh, are, I don't know what we're, what we call that little corner, but it's sort of the, the oblique fact of uh, non, non tech news that we're throwing in each time, but we are going to be talking about tech news. And if you're listening to this uh, either live as we have Peggy George joining us, we're so excited to have your support, Peggy. Uh, or if you're going to join us after the fact, we have all of our links on edtechsr.com slash links. And we probably have fewer links today, tonight than we, than we have, but that's probably good because, you know, some days we, we have a ridiculous number and we've been off for two weeks. So, uh, I was in Chicago week before last, I guess, with my wife who spoke to a thousand PBS broadcasters and I got to carry her luggage and, uh, arrange for, uh, airport, airport transport. And, uh, have you been traversing the friendly skies as well lately? I've I not, although it's going to change this coming summer. So I think, uh, my wife and I have been kind of looking at the calendar and I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to be traveling more weekends than I will be home this, this summer. So, um, uh, yeah, it's good. I, I like to be busy. So I pretend otherwise sometimes, but I, I, I like to be busy. So. Awesome. All right. So why don't you get started, Wes, with a, a link for the week? All right. Sounds good. Well, I, uh, well, let's just start at the top. I, um, I do love listening, by the way, to the, to a podcast called, uh, Clockwise and they are done in 30 minutes and they've got a great format. And in fact, we're a bit, you know, kind of an, part of an, partially an inspiration for what we're doing here. And, uh, on their latest show, they were talking about the Google IO, which I, I kind of think we're going to talk about a little bit. I saw, uh, your geek of the week and <clears throat> we've had the Amazon Echo for a while, but now we, we have other, uh, virtual assistants joining the fray. I don't think I put the link in, but actually Apple announced that they're going to have a similar kind of device powered by Siri. And uh, we also have Google uh, entering it. But the article from The Verge, which was back on May 9th, says the creators of Siri just showed off their next AI assistant, Viv, and it's incredible. And that was mentioned on the Clockwise podcast. And as they talked about as well, uh, 
Siri hasn't really evolved a ton since she, he, it, whatever, you know, came out. And a lot of times sends you to web searches. And it's fascinating to me to listen to my kids in the car generally uh, try to interact with Siri. And one of the things they're trying to do is is really get a conversation going, but get that response. Not that one time, you know, tell me this fact or or open this app, but, you know, follow on. And so evidently. This new AI assistant, Viv, has some of that potential to be able to have context. And, and if you've asked something and then you ask something else, I guess, to tie it together. Um, but, you know, virtual assistants are going to just, when we've been talking about it, artificial intelligence or AI on the show before, they're just going to continue to improve. And the vision of the future that, that, that I've read about and heard about is this, you know, cloud-based vision, essentially, where the AI intelligence is on supercomputers that are not on your device, but your device connected to the cloud and it can, it can access that. And, you know, on the one hand, I'm a little nervous about it because I, I, Heard another article, read another article recently that the NSA will neither confirm nor deny that they have hacked the Amazon Echo. And basically they probably have. And if you have one in your house, you know, the potential is it's, you know, the Internet of Things is my house is hackable because all most of this is being designed without security in mind. So you could have hackers listening to your every word and recording those, you know, by having a device like this. But I I know that this is an important part of the future. We've probably I know you've seen Star Trek. All right, you said you were a Trekkie last time, so you know Picard on the bridge and you know being able to yeah that's right live long and prosper, being able to um you know have I'm I'm using voice to text a lot when when I'm sending text messages and so speech that speech to text it's different. But anyway, it's a big part of the future. How about you? Do you, do you have the Amazon Echo now? Will you be embracing? the virtual assistant, you know, in your home, Jason, and, and do you, what do you think about this in terms of the future and I guess schools specific? Sure. Well, and as, as we've talked before, this is the crux of my dissertation research and I don't want to go too much into that because it's, it's, uh, um, we're still working on the design model and such. And at some point we'll probably, I'll probably talk about it a little wider, but I do think that this is an incredibly important topic and the, the perspective for me, and I, I should say, I do not have an Amazon echo, um, my wife is part of the reason why I don't have an Amazon Echo. I've kind of pitched it, uh, jokingly and it, it's kind of landed with a thud, but, um, the, I, I think there's something to this, but I, I think part of what you have to, to frame this perspective from is, is what the purpose of those devices are in context of, of, of who's releasing it, right? So for Google, it's to keep you in their universe, right? Like everything goes back to search, which of course the advertising. In the Microsoft universe, I think it's a little harder to figure out where it goes, although they have a search engine, so you can presume that's similar for Microsoft uh, as it is for Google, keeping them in the Microsoft universe. But then when you start to talk about Amazon, um, you know, Amazon, of course, like they've they've been uh, really smart in that they've made so many uh, uh, kind of conduits of information between the Echo and and various apps and services to make it very functional. And then, oh, by the way, you can order things from Amazon on the Echo, which, you know, then becomes obviously the purpose of that. It's, it's a bigger struggle for me of what's in it for Apple, although I think the context of all of the articles is correct, that Siri has been somewhat stagnant for the past 12, 24, 36 months. And what I think is, is potentially exciting is that as Google and, and part of Google I.O., which we're going to probably talk about a couple of times today, a couple of weeks ago was announced evolution of Google Now, which is their voice service. And Google Now uh, will be able to hold, as you suggest, a Wes conversations and be able to remember questions from time to time. I think all those pieces could push the the you know i guess the four and then if you take this this viv product the five ecosystems that exist for voice and keep pushing them forward until maybe you know two maybe three emerge as the dominant ones but i think this has a huge potential for education especially as when it comes to individual students uh we spend a lot of time um i think talking about how search and the internet and its vastness uh, kind of changes the nature of education because of the need for data and that data need is less because of that. 
Um, I, I don't think that the promise of that has really been met in classrooms because search is still pretty complex and a lot of kids aren't very good at. It. In fact, I know of some research that specifically says that there's been colleges and uh, that have done studies about their own incoming freshmen, about how bad they are at Google searching, despite their insistence that they are very good at it and can use that for education. Whereas a, um, a voice assistant that is smart that could ask you questions back or be able to provide facts could be a very powerful way of, of introducing search in a, 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 um, a, a sensitive contextual way for students in a classroom environment. So I would say these are, you know, coming to a, um, um, you know, a user or a school near you or a student near you. Um, Peggy and Chet asked how they're measuring uh, students not good at search. Uh, the study, I'm going to now say college and probably be wrong. Maybe it was Kent State. Um, I'll need to look more specifically. But they um, brought students in um, and interviewed them, uh, grabbed some, some um, qualitative data on what they perceived their searching ability to be, and then had them conduct basic searches for information on Google. And like 77% of those students were not able to do anything but very surface searches and um, um uh, couldn't dig down very deeply. And it was actually, uh, I had been kind of pitching that as true for the last couple of years when I've talked with educators and done professional development related to search. And then that study, which I ran into uh, earlier this year, is pretty clear. In fact, I'll, think I, I'll see if I can find a link for that because that's a. It, you know, stuff. it's certainly one of these things that's just going to continue to grow in capability. And I, <laughs> I remember not very many years ago hearing about some superintendents here in Oklahoma that dictated letters and correspondence to their administrative assistants and who were not using email. And this is within the last 10 years. It may be about five or six years ago. But I was like flabbergasted, number one, that they weren't on email. And number two, like who would dictate? Like that is so old school. And, you know, I, I, like I said, I find myself doing that a lot now. Um We've said this before on the show, you know, we are becoming cyborgs. Our devices are an extension of our, of our minds. And, you know, it's good. It's, it's, and it's like keyboarding as well. We think about what do we need to be doing in school? I mean, learning how to do good iterative searches is definitely a huge skill. And it's not something we should assume people, people can, you know, have. Uh, we still have the myth of the digital native. It's very pervasive. I run into it regularly. And part of that myth is, yeah, they know how to research. I mean, knowing how to type google.com or type into your browser omnibar, you know, does not a digital literate person make. And so, I, I'm interested in, if you can get, find that article, maybe put that in the show notes. I'd like to check that out because there are some of these things that we kind of toss around like they're sort of, you know, common knowledge. And, and we do have experiential encounters with students that reinforce that. But it is interesting to see what researchers are saying about it. And, it, and it's relevant in terms of what we are doing in class. We're having a chance at our school now to kind of uh, um, perhaps reimagine or, or imagine uh, what computer science should look like, especially for high school, but also for, for, for middle school. And I'm really energized by these conversations. We're talking, you know, bigger than just computer science. We're talking about maker ed. Uh, we're talking about STEM. And, you know, what are we doing? And I, I think that every single computer class at any level needs to be regularly uh, the instructors as well as whoever's you know writing curriculum need to be looking at what are we doing and how are we changing because so much is continuing to move forward I was having pangs of guilt today that playing with media is five years old oh my gosh what an ancient text you know I got to get that sucker updated um, but because part of that idea is that you know it's not Microsoft Office it's all of these additional things and so I think that's a hugely important right. Um, thing for us to model in school is that digital literacy is continuing to move. And that means that we shouldn't be doing the same sets of projects that we did five years ago. You know, it, it, we always need to be exploring and iterating, uh, not, not just because we're on right. the bleeding edge, but also because being that kind of learner and that kind of a teacher is essential for relevance in the 21st century. So I'm, I'm uh, continuing to be interested in that. I'm not, you know, teaching, you know, pre-service teachers at this point, but, you know, continue to, to try to wonder about, you know, where, where I'm going to be working in terms of advocacy. My wife and I are, are kind of be working on sure. this inside and outside sharing stuff, but you know, it's, it's, um, 
right. it's something that I know you've you've grappled with as you've taught pre-service teachers as well. And you know, should we be doing the Amazon Echo or or the Google Home or whatever Apple's calling their device in school today? Eh, maybe not. I mean, it's a bleeding edge technology, but you know, when we start to imagine what that can do and we think about it being a useful tool for us in terms of input of information, but especially, you know, being able to, to, to have an algorithm perform complex, a complex sequence of things that are useful for us. Um, you know, we need to be moving in that direction. So. And then I did drop the link uh, that refers to the study. It's from inside higher ed and uh, it was Illinois Wesleyan university. Um, of course, yeah, I'm just making up Kent State, maybe it's Purdue, probably Harvard, uh, you know, but there, there's a citation specifically to that study in, uh, in the article in chat. And I also threw that in, in tonight's show notes. And for those of you that, uh, are new to the podcast, uh, edtechsr.com, you'll find the weekly show notes, which include links to all the stuff we're talking about. Tonight. Awesome. Okay. So on that topic, um, I, um, the NCCE Tech Savvy Teacher blog is reporting that uh, two weeks ago at Google I.O., there was a pretty big announcement that I think was was I mean, it was certainly talked about by the the, um, the the National Android and Chrome Press. That's the nerdiest thing I think I've ever said. But the International Chrome Press. Um, Which there are but, thousands, uh, I'm I think sure. <laughs> yeah, thousands of people that sit at home writing about Android. But uh, no offense to Android-loving journalists out there. But um, I uh, I think that the announcement that um, that Android apps will now be available through the Play Store on the Chromebook is maybe the biggest announcement made by Google I.O. a few weeks ago. And for those of you that, that are new to the announcement... Um, and there's a uh, there's a bit of commentary that I put on on my blog blog.ntce.org about what this means or how it could impact schools. But the bottom line is is that um, uh, starting this summer for three devices and then later in the year for another twenty or twenty five devices or so, the Play Store like is available on the Android phone platform will be available on a Chromebook, which means that without much effort on the part of developers, uh, you can run any Android app on the Chrome platform, which in my humble opinion is a stunning development for the Chromebook. Now, one thing I, I do feel like I need to say is that, um, and, and I've actually been called a Chromebook apologist before uh, a couple of months ago when I was kind of doing some Chrome advocacy, but um, I am just fine on a Chromebook. Uh, I don't have any problem using that, that platform for uh, 80, 90% of what I do on any given day, um, and, and maybe even more, actually. And the other uh, secret and very nerdy secret that uh, uh, I've also come to terms with is I'm also a big Linux guy, too. I, like Tonight, I'm joining you via an Xbuntu Linux uh, laptop that I, I have. And I, I mean, I dual boot to, to Windows 10, but um, you know, I spend most of my time either on a Mac or uh, some sort of Linux-based system, whether it's the Chrome operating system or it's it's uh, um, uh, some version of Linux. And the reason why that's important is because the web has become so functional in the past five years that that really, uh, unless you are using very specialized software, there's really no need to have a full desktop operating system for a good percentage of things that normal people do um, uh, on a computer. And that said, I'm I. I I'm just fine on that platform, but there are many things that uh, I would say are lacking a bit on on the uh, uh, web piece that I would happily use uh, probably 25 or 30 different applications that would be much, much better if I had the app available as opposed to the web-based version. Uh, for example, the thing I'm most excited about, assuming Microsoft doesn't block it, having access to the mobile PowerPoint app which is an extremely powerful platform. I, I've been very impressed with my, what Microsoft's done on the Android and iOS platforms to uh, port their Office system over there. That would be, a, a, I think, a very, very great addition to a Chromebook because then I could work on PowerPoint presentations um, as opposed to the web-based Office 365, which I don't find nearly as functional or useful. So, um, and then imagine for a moment if the uh, the... Chrome interface, I'm sorry, the administrative interface for Google Apps for Education allows you to do the same thing that you have in the past been able to do with like Android devices. And you can pick, for example, seven or eight 
uh, uh, Chrome or I'm sorry, Android applications that just get rolled out onto student or teach Chromebooks as part of that management console that exists for administrators. And you can simply see how uh, a school could put together a suite of 10, 15 applications that go on all these student Chromebooks that would be fabulously functional and, and may really make that Chromebook uh, that much more powerful of a platform. So I see, Wes, you held up your Chromebook, um, which you are using um, I, as to, to surf on while we're on the show tonight. What does this mean to you that Android apps might be available? So I just dropped into the show notes a link to an amazing show that's now discontinued, uh, the Chrome show from GigaOM. Uh, GigaOM was one, and I think it's they've they've tried to relaunch it, but all of their folks kind of went to the four winds. And uh, anyway, uh, Kevin Tofel and uh, I think it's Yanko Rutgers, I, I think I'm saying his name right, who did this show, and they're both still awesome to follow. They they said over a year ago, their last show was in March of 2015, talking about what Google's grand strategy was for Android and for Chrome and whether there was a pathway you know, where the two would meet. I think it was maybe... It was in, it was this past fall where we heard the rumor that maybe Chrome was dead, you know, and people were like, what's going to happen? And their Chromebooks dying. And, you know, that was a, was a false rumor. But from a development standpoint, I think it, it probably makes a lot of sense. Uh, Chrome has not had the robust store that has been a huge engine of, you know, innovation and creativity. Perhaps income, although I don't know how many people are, are, are wealthy today because of, of apps. Um, I think it's, I, I need to learn a lot about this, you know, from a personal standpoint, we're a Google apps uh, for education school. We've, we've been that way for, I think about four years. Uh, we've just ordered some more Chromebooks. Uh, we have a number of Chromebook carts now. And I, I mean, one thing I'm energized by, right, is the ability and the opportunity to have students create apps and to create apps myself and to be able to put those on multiple devices. We just had some professors from Oklahoma State University at our school last week who are working with some of our elementary kids, actually, and doing a little a little study uh, on with using App Inventor, which I have not played with a lot. You know, it, there's fundamentally different approaches to apps and the curation of apps and the ecosystem that Google has and that Apple has. Uh, and I love them both, right? I'm using a new MacBook, the, the thin one port version to, to do this, uh, blab show. And, and here's my, my Dell Chromebook that, um, I, I do love, you know, 11 inch. It's the third Chromebook we've bought as a family and it's my favorite so far. So I drink, I drink the Kool-Aid from, from both sides. Um, I think a robust app environment is beneficial on so many different levels. I know that there are issues in terms of not having content as gate kept, for instance, with objectionable content and things like that, you know, showing up on the store. But I really expect Google to have thought that out and to have addressed that for schools. And we'll pro I don't know, I haven't read enough about this to, to, if it's already there, but I would expect us to see something with Google Apps that's going to allow us to have some kind of curated, whitelisted, you know, app store and that we're going to be able to approve stuff. And, you know, extensions are huge for Chrome. I mean, alone, the Google tab suspender and then, um, well, what's the one that I'm using over here? Um, uBlock Origin is the, is the ad blocker that I use. Mm -hmm. These change my life every single day. And it's important that the ecosystem that we're using is robust for developers, that it's friendly and, you know, that, that it's vibrant. So I'm, I'm excited by it. I'm also the dream that I had and many others in, in the circa 2009 age when, when netbooks came out and we heard about OLPC, the one laptop per child project from, from MIT. And, you know, the promise of one-to-one -one computing, the, the devices were not ready at that point for, for this really small, inexpensive footprint device that could do robust things, not just consume and, and, and deliver, but allow for the creation of content. I really think we're there today with the Chromebook, and I'm excited to see this development. I, I don't, so far, I don't see any negatives to it. So do you see, do you see any downsides from an educational standpoint? I don't. The only concern I have is that they are limiting um, 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 
they are limiting which Chromebooks that they're going to roll this functionality out on. And the reason why that's surprising to me um, is that, um, you know, Chrome had promised that a five-year support for the for, for individual hardware Chromebooks that are vetted by them. And um, um, they are, um, they're only supporting, I think, two-year-old and better and not even all the two-year-old ones. And the reason why that's interesting is because, the Chromebook Pixel, the original Chromebook Pixel, the super high-end Chromebook uh, from Google, um, is uh, three years old, and they're not supporting it. And that thing is still far and away the second or third most powerful Chromebook ever released. And so it's not even a, a question of hardware. They seem to be just picking an arbitrary line and saying these will have uh, that, that functionality to it. Um, but I'll tell you that uh, last year or so, and I, I, my Chromebook is a, a 2014 Dell 11 um, that I really like a lot. It was it was pretty expensive for the time. I think it was like 400 bucks in, in 2014. Now you could buy a much more relatively advanced Chromebook for 400 bucks than you could during that time on the market. But um, I, about a year ago or so, um, I went the process. You could hand port various Android apps over to um, the Chrome platform. It was pretty hacky and it required um, a lot of uh, uh, clicking that was um, um, uh, uh, somewhat cumbersome, but I ported over four or five apps. They were low function apps. It was like my white my white noisemaker that I use sometimes when I have to concentrate on a project and that sort of thing. But it was awesome to be able to pull up a little window and have an app available there. And they were nice unitaskers, which I think uh, a good app can oftentimes be. And I, I, it's, I just think it's a very, very uh, uh, potentially wonderful thing for schools regarding Chromebooks. I just wish that there, I mean, because I know that especially with a lot of the low-end Chrome apps, require, or I'm sorry, Android apps requiring no real hardware specs, you know, that the some of the slower, older Chromebooks will be included in the list. But other than that, I think this can only be a positive. Awesome. Well, I'll segue us to my next article because it has to do with coding. Uh, because one of the reasons why I'm excited about this, and I mentioned App Inventor, is in schools, we need to be helping students learn how to, it's the, it's the Douglas Rushkoff uh, programmer be programmed, you know, how to have agency over the device, not only in creating media, but also in creating algorithms and in understanding that code is created by people. It's not magic and you can create code. In fact, you need to create code because so many of the jobs of today and the future involve manipulating data using algorithms. I mean, let's look at meteorology tonight. I mean, most of the severe weather is to the north. My parents up in Manhattan, Kansas had to, had to get in their basement last night because of a tornado. And I think, again, there was something something close by. Meteorology is all math, baby. I mean, they're, in terms of the modeling and in terms of the ways that they're trying to understand the atmosphere um, and, and so much of understanding the economy and understanding marketing and trends that so much has to do with data and it has to do with being able to get into code and algorithms and, and all of this. So the next article I had was from wired on May 17th. It's titled soon. We won't program computers. We'll train them like dogs. And it's about machine learning. And, and this is a different approach, which I will give a shout out to my, my friend, Bill Casebeer, who, uh, next to you, Jason, one of the smartest people that I uh, call a friend and, and know personally. Uh, Bill has a dual doctorate in cognitive neuroscience and philosophy, and his last assignment at the Air Force was working for, for DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. He now works for Lockheed, I'm sure doing lots of classified stuff. But he was the first one to tell me about machine learning because he was doing research um, for his doctorate about neural nets and how you train, uh, uh, you know, basically a, a, a computer to be able to learn. And so machine learning is different than, you know, what we might think of with coding if we were back in the basic days or even with scratch with block-based where you, you drag these, these blocks in. With machine learning, it, it is like a neural net and you are you're showing it things and giving it feedback. And so you establish a feedback process whereby the, the, the computer is able to find out what you like and what you don't, what's positive and what's negative, and receives a lot of inputs. And then over time, essentially writes its own code and then is able to do what you, you know, have trained it to do. But what's wild and what this article talks about is 
you don't debug these kinds of, of programs and algorithms in the same way that you, you know, debug a PHP or C++ or any uh, other programming language, which, you know, is running a sequential, you know, amount of code. And it really takes us into this AI world in a little bit more of kind of a black box of how things work because, with with machine learning, it's going to be a different way of developing algorithms and and programming and coding, and and it almost may it may lower the bar in some ways. And it's kind of in in the similar way maybe that graphical user interfaces and things like that made different kinds of computing tasks far more accessible to more people because you didn't have to be writing code and and doing that. I mean, certainly not at a zeros and ones level. Not many people ever, you know, have done that ever. Um, But anyway, I think it's, I think it's pretty interesting. And uh, have you had exposure to machine learning before Jason and you have opinions about that or, or what that's going to mean? Um. I find it really interesting, and I read a lot about it, but that's it, it has yet to really impact me professionally. Other than we, uh, uh, the another person that I work with closely at the Digital Academy is Mike Agustinelli. He's been on the show before. He's kind of one of my partners in crime in, in projects that I do, and we keep thinking about how, particularly for students that struggle mightily inside of content, that if content can take data and start to adapt itself to individual learners, that. Uh, the future of learning could be a, a lot of more individualized instruction, particularly for students that struggle or students that have um, a, a, a lot of, of, of struggle that they bring to a particular content, a particular piece. Uh, but yeah, there, there's a lot here. And, you know, and as we talked about in the past, it's, it's one of those things where it's, it's obviously going to impact a lot and it's going to change everything. But the question becomes, you know, how do we embrace it in schools? When is it too much? When is it dangerous? When is it powerful? And I, I don't think we're really preparing ourselves for these discussions very well. As we talked about before, I know, Wes, that you've read a lot recently about future-looking initiatives um, uh, uh, on a number of levels that, that could be uh, both uh, very powerful and troubling. But uh, there's, a, there's a lot here, and I think it's a very interesting way to go about this process. And, you know, uh, I'll, do, I'll do an encouragement to everybody as a challenge, and, and I'm taking this on, too, to think about ways we can bring people from our local community to interface with our kids to talk about what they're doing with their jobs. And, yes, that can be about their reading and their writing, but it can also be about their use of technologies and coding. I mean, somebody the other day was just my, – actually, my parents got a tour of our school when they were here for graduation – and um, we we're talking about 3D printing and dentistry, right? Just about every dental office today is involved in 3D printing and they can turn some dentures or some, you know, something for your mouth around in a few days that might have, you know, taken a week or longer. Um, where are people using coding? Where are algorithms playing into, you know, people's jobs and height, helping us get our heads around the importance of this and that that's not just something for over there. That's not just, oh yeah, you go to music and you do it over there. Oh yeah, you come to computer and, and you do it over here. Literacy, like when do you do literacy? Well, hopefully you do it in, in all of your classes, you know, because you're at some level talking about communicating and you're talking about expression and, and all of that. Um, so I, I, I think that I'm not saying we need to be doing coding everywhere, but I am saying that it fits into a lot of contexts and, and it would be good for us to think okay. creatively about the ways we help everyone, not just students, but teachers and parents as well recognize, Hey, this is, hugely important. This this is not going to do anything but get more important in the future. And if we want to help our kids be future ready, then we need to have them doing coding at, at some level. So maybe it will be machine coding. Maybe it'll be, you know, something else, but um, it's, it's something that we need to, we need to be passionate about. And I think every school needs advocates for, and if you're listening to our show and Hey, it looks like we have a, a few other folks joining us live. That's awesome. Um, if you're, it, you can you could be that person in your community who is the champion for for coding and for you know stem education maker education there's there's a lot of overlap in this kind of thing but every school needs that kind of champion and we certainly don't have a critical mass a majority of teachers who are embracing that idea today and and talking about it and then bringing the opportunities to the kids you know how are we going to help the kids let's not wait for the curriculum to change, right? Let's not wait for the textbook to change. You know, let's figure out how to have a coding club, how to have, you know, science Olympiad that, that does, you know, 
activities that involve coding. And as one of our seventh grade teachers was telling me the other day, I mean, let's do something with drones that involves coding. Let's do something with, you know, spheros or, or other kinds of things, because it's not just like let's code, but let's do it purposefully, you know, in order to solve a problem and accomplish a task. And, you know, that's where the overlap with STEM is so, so clear and so exciting. Okay, great. And then um, related to that topic, actually, our topics seem to have dovetailed into each other really well. Um, there was a really great uh, book excerpt that appeared in Ed Search. Uh, it was yesterday by Paul Tuff, and Paul Tuff is the author of the recently released "Helping Children Succeed: What Works and Why." And the the uh, title of the commentary was "Why Grit Can't Be Taught Like Math." And I can give a quick summary of of the. Um, the article, although I would suggest strongly that you read it, but basically the idea is, is that there's been a lot of, of conversation and it's been really, really dominant in, in the last six months, especially at conferences I've been to and as part of Twitter chats I've participated in. There's a lot of question on how we help kids become, um, you know, a little more tough in the way they um, approach issues. Uh, grit is sometimes a word. Student agency uh, I've heard used quite a bit. Um, uh, stick to itiveness is another word that I heard earlier this year, but it's a, a question that's starting to dominate as, you know, students that are given, um, every opportunity in the world to learn or every pathway in the world to learn sometimes don't have that, that kind of grit that's required to fail and then grow and fail and grow and fail and grow, which is starting to become a, a fairly common refrain about how students can become the kind of advanced, uh, uh, you know, creative, knowledgeable, um, with it problem solvers we want them to be. But the, the bottom line of this article, and I've, I've actually purchased this book and I'll be reading it in, in coming weeks, uh, because of, of what I read here is that you can't teach grit with lessons. That the only way to really teach grit and to teach students that, uh, how to dust themselves off and kind of jump back into problems, even if they're, they're facing challenges is to provide an environment that allows them to do so. In other words, it's not a, a lesson you go through. It's not a, a set of advice you give. It's not a self-help book that students make their way through. You have to put them in an environment where they do uh, uh, have to solve problems, where they have to uh, probably run into fail uh, or failures uh, occasionally. Um, 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 to, to grow like that's that's the growing process and the reason why i think that's interesting is because i think that does fit into this broader maker movement it fits into the broader uh calls for coding inside the classroom not in in the way oftentimes people think it's a computer science course but as you were suggesting west it applies uh, the logarithmic thinking and the way that we develop solutions to problems applies to way more than the computer science field and what uh, mr tuff is suggesting here is that we need to provide students more opportunities inside of modern schools to experiment and to you know grow more functional as problem solvers and creative thinkers by putting them in environments that encourages them to do so because students ultimately are a product of their environment. So Peggy that. pointed out that grit is a word some people resist, and that's what I was going to push back a little bit. I'm trying to think of what's the – this is a book study we did last summer, which I didn't actually read the whole thing, um, about oh, growth, growth mindset. Who does growth mindset? So yeah. I think oh, um, um, I think that um, Carol Dweck. Yeah. <laughs> How fast Carol can Dweck. you Google yeah. search? We, we should give away prizes <laughs> for people who are seeing it live. Um, so part of the idea there, I think, is that, you know, it's not just about having kids tough it out. You know, it's also about changing our mindset when it comes to grades and when it comes to even student capabilities and not seeing capabilities and potential as fixed things, but being able to see, you know, kids that, um, you know, are, are able to exceed our expectations and, and we need to focus on the process and not just the, the end, you know, grade and all, all of that kind of stuff. Um, I, I think it's hugely important that we do encourage grit. One of the things that came up in this conversation maybe two weeks ago when we had uh, some community members as well as folks at our school come together reimagining computer science uh, and uh, STEM is this idea that students, in order to develop grit and tenacity, they need time 
after they fail to figure out how to solve it and to fix it. And, you know, when do we do that? Because so often, you know, you've got the grade and that's done, but where is the time in the makerspace to, Oh, my, my algorithm didn't work to get my drone where I needed it to come. How do I figure that out? And, and this is part of reimagining school schedules and reimagining spaces as well. And thinking about student passion, how all of those kind of things can fit in because, if you're going to develop that kind of, of grit, you're probably going to be doing it in a project that you personally care about, you have a lot of interest and motivation in, and, and you have encouragement, but it's, it, we have to, we need to probably address the schedule and the time factor. So this it, it fits into tinkering as well, right? That there's a lot of learning that can happen when we tinker, when we build, when we make. And so if we're going to develop, you know, tenacity and grit, I mean, part of it also, I think of the, you know, we need to do more than get kids motivated to survive the traditional regimen of math and, and, and preparation courses that you're going to have to do to do engineering. Um, you know, I've heard people talk about that as far as grit, you know, being able to, oh, I'm going to make it through these things. You know, at some level, we also need to be reimagining what those classes look like. It's like Olin University, which has reinvented engineering and made it all very project based. And they don't just have the traditional calc one, physics one, chemistry one. And, you know, this the same the same set of, uh, you know, the canon of education of what we expect people to to take and and be able to be able to do. So, yeah, I mean, I, I did not read the article, um, but but the I, I was talking to one of our our math prof- uh teachers just this week who I don't remember the name of the school. He goes up to the Northeast and he does some really high level uh, stuff on cryptography and helping high schoolers do cryptography and learn about that from a mathematical standpoint. Um, And we were talking about, you know, needing to offer different pathways for math and how, in some respects, I think we do a great disservice when it comes to math. It's, it's almost the easiest thing to teach poorly because here it is in the book, you know, turn to this page. I'm going to do this algorithm and then you're going to copy it, you know, versus learning to think and learning to think and to solve problems and to move outside the algorithm and what's in the, in the problem. Again, that brings in STEM. It's a different way of learning. It's, it's cognitively much more challenging, both for the teacher as well as for the student. And it's hard. It, you know, it, it, it's harder. It, it is definitely easier to try to, you know, deliver a canned curriculum versus, hey, where are we going to go today? What kind of project are you going to do? How am I going to help you, you know, persist this despite uh, difficulties and be able to succeed in whatever it is that you're trying to figure out? Right. And the one thing I would say is that the, I think the point of, uh, I think that, that, it kind of leads back to that at the bottom of that commentary from from Ed Surge that part of part of the point here is to throw kids in an environment that does mm. encourage them to do so. In other words, um, that's where I, I kind of thought makerspaces when I first read the article because there was this notion that we can't really build skills, problem solving, that sort of thing into kids unless we give them the opportunity to really do so outside of those traditional boxes. Although I will say that um, um, that. Uh, you mentioned engineering as an example of this, but I think there's a lot of content areas where, um, and actually there's another article I was going to throw in this week and it, it's too, it's too big and too, too nebulous to, to kind of really do here without me thinking about it a little bit. But there was a big article earlier this week, uh, uh, where the author was talking about how the work, um, work needs to change, right? Like that the technology really hasn't led to the disruption they would expect it to outside of a handful of industries. And one of the reasons why is because we haven't really allowed technology to come in and really disrupt work. In other words, the the notion that we are keeping humans uh, in a lot of jobs they don't really need to be in. And then my brain started going all sorts of places. And one of the places it went actually was, you know, we talk about the lack of, uh, of jobs in a technologically developed world. And I think that's an opportunity to actually expand the number of teachers in the world. One of the things we don't come to really reality with, uh, with, uh, talking about some of the, the, the new and evolutionary ways to look at classrooms is that a maker classroom or an individualized classroom or a personalized classroom, I don't care what term or, or perspective you fit from 
if in its best interpretation, it requires a lot more teachers to make that happen. And in fact, that's what I wish on schools that, you know, to make this, this, the, these dreams happen, we're going to need a lot more talented teachers, a lot more experts, a lot more facilitators, um, and, and, uh, and teachers of all ilk, um, and, in all perspectives and in all, um, uh, ways and, 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 and philosophies in order to make that happen. And one of the ways we could, you know, perhaps evolve our labor forces to say there's lots of jobs that probably won't exist anymore in a really substantially disrupted economy. So why don't we start thinking about how we can turn that into, you know, doubling and tripling our teacher force in 2020, 2025, 2035 and use that to, you know, kind of invest back into the humans of the future. And so that's, that's a way out there, <laughs> um, and a big cloud of, 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 of argument and thought, but that's where my mind keeps going when I read articles as such. Absolutely. And it's, and it's huge that we think about what is learning, right? It is not the delivery of content. And if it was, then we would just all be online and everyone would thrive. And you're, yeah. you're probably, you know, as yeah. better, as better qualified than, than 99% of the people out there to speak to that, that it's not going to be for everybody and it's not just going to be mad magical that you know suddenly you have an online opportunity and and you're you're golden you've got everything you need there's so many other factors at play relationships are key accountability uh but just also differentiating and knowing that you know people are different and and we and yes we can have technology tools that can help us differentiate better but it doesn't right. mean that we can just you know hand somebody a screen and say see you right. 12 years you know when you when you've got what you want peggy put a right. question in that i'll toss to you uh jason what do you think about the idea yeah, that makerspace is really about mindset rather than actual space. True. There you go. Yeah, and uh, you know, I would say that that uh, that that couldn't be more true. And and I think that especially the earlier advocates, when uh, the make movement was really getting started in um, you know late two thousands, two thousand seven, eight, nine, uh, the evolution of the maker um, magazine, the maker blog, and 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 all the the kind of things that went along with that. I think that's really what they were going for is they want people to feel empowered to create solutions that are not, um, that involve human ingenuity and um, uh, uh, I, I guess a little bit of stick to it to this, sure. this, if you will, that you know you can build and rebuild and, and engage in a scientific process in small ways. And I think absolutely true. Yep. DIY, you know, philosophy. Uh, however, I will say sometimes we also will hear people say, well, the technology doesn't matter. You know, it's not about the technology. Well, we wouldn't be having this conversation today if we didn't have the technology, right? If we didn't have the internet connectivity yep. and the devices, uh, we're, this is transformative. We're having a transformative conversation and Peggy's asking us questions from Arizona and I'm not sure where our ed tech theater, who is that actually? I'll have to take a, take a look and give, give it's, a, Nick it's, it's Nick Cusimano and your comment is couldn't be, couldn't be more true that the, uh, that, uh, awesome, Nick. um, the theater space is, uh, uh, it, it's been maker for well, as, 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 as long as I've been involved, uh, which was mostly, you know, 25 years ago in high school, but still, yep, so true. Yeah. But I will say this space matters. And, and having had the privilege yeah. a few weeks ago to listen almost all day to David Jakes, who worked for the third teacher and is really into learning spaces, you know, talk about how, our expectations are just different when we move into different spaces. It's one of the reasons why sometimes it's important to take kids out of their regular classroom because they have all kinds of ideas about the, the way they're supposed to behave and the way the learning happens and, and just the whole, the way things roll, you know, in a particular space. And so, yes, while it is a mindset and a philosophy and you don't have to have a maker space to have a maker school and, and to be a maker, right? It's really a decision that you make in terms of embracing a philosophy. It does make a huge difference. In fact, my wife, I don't know if we'll get to record this podcast tonight, but her kids have been so fired up to go back to their maker space this last week of school. And it's, it's not magical. There's all kinds of things they've done in order to build the culture around making, but having a space where they can get, get messy and they have all this stuff out and they have these resources and these things to build with and to make with it, it definitely does make a difference. So my, uh, is it okay if I take it, take us to my next article? Yeah, go ahead. Right, I'll do this one kind of quick, but uh, I thought it was interesting. This is uh, titled Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway buys $1 billion of Apple stock. Uh, we've definitely 
you know, bantered back and forth about, you know, talking Amazon, uh, Google and, and Apple. And, um, you know, Apple is an innovation company and, you know, they're, it, it's good. I mean, I've, <laughs> I was, I was the Apple fan before it was cool to be the Apple fan, right? <laughs> in the mid nineties when, and I wish I had, I had some actual Apple stock at that time. I wish I had just hung on to it, but, um, you know, it's, we're, we, we're not seeing anybody today that's a major player, even Microsoft. I wouldn't count out of the, of the game in terms of innovation and what, uh, what they're doing. So yeah, I don't, I don't have lots of, of extra funds to be able to buy Apple stock, but if Warren Buffett thinks it's a good idea, probably, probably is. And I would say that bodes well for schools because we're going to continue to see, uh, Apple that's a major player as well as Google innovate in the space and competition in this context is a very positive thing and it, it, it leads to more choices for us. So did, did you have a, a local flood or a cat emergency or, or something that required you? No, to I, I, Power. Oh, so, electricity. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've got 18%, but I uh, think I'm, I think I'm going to be good till the end. The, uh, and, and you know, and I think that, that there's been a lot of hand wringing the last six weeks about the drop in Apple stock. And then there, of course, there's the, the annual, um, is Apple dead rumors and, and that sort of crap. Um, and you know, it, it's, they're, they're, they're no better or worse off than Google or Microsoft or, or any other tech innovation company, it's going to come and go. Um, I think we're in a tech bubble right now. I mean, I think that's a that's very true. And I should um, I should say that that officially, I do uh, you know I own a lot a lot by mean by number of different companies, not a lot of, but I own Google stock and Apple stock, and I suppose I suppose I'm in a journalist context here, so or commentary context here. So full disclosure, I own some tech stocks, um, you know, because I'm apparently a major player in the stock market, but. You know, the, the, the notion is, is that, you know, that most of the innovation that has happened, uh, that, that's really disrupting right now technology has come from Apple. So I think that's a smart move on, on, uh, Warren Buffett's part and is a definitely a true piece of that process. And, um, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's an exciting time, I think, to, to watch what's going to happen next. Uh, you did see that there, uh, that there's a rumor that there are new, thinner touchscreen MacBook Pros that are on the way this summer. That's the latest rumor. Oh, nope. I did not, did not see that. So we're not actually refreshing this year, uh, Mac laptops. We've got over 90% of our, our teachers with, with Mac laptops. And that's going to be an interesting refresh when we do because there's these different choices, right? As far as the form factor or even iPad Pro and what we go with. So that's, that's interesting. Well, uh, you want to do us one more article and then maybe Geeks of the Week? Yeah, this one's a really quick one, mostly because it's entertaining. But um, there was a report out this week that said that uh, the U.S. nuclear missile silos are running on systems that include 8-inch floppy disk drives. 8-inch? Um, and so we're talking about, for those of you that are not like old school geeks, um, there was kind of three levels of floppy disk. There was the eight inch floppy disk was, which, which was a big old floppy disk. There was the five and a quarter inch floppy disk, which is when I got into computers in the mid eighties. That was replaced by the much more compact three and a half inch floppy disk, which was then replaced by the, well, the disappearance of the floppy disk because it was no longer that particularly useful. I guess probably the closest. CD, CDs, um, I think. Uh, yeah, CDs, I guess, and then the closest thing that exists today that's that's related Ooh. to that is the USB drive. It was drive. the zip drive, so, baby. Remember, uh, well, remember drive. a one hundred yeah. meg zip drive. You thought yeah. you were the king with that. I did. Uh, zip. Uh, then the jazz drive from iOmega. You may oh, remember yeah. that. Dude, I've got a zip drive in my garage right over here, probably with data yeah. that I'll never get off. Because who can plug in a SCSI yeah. anymore? No one. I know. No kidding. Um, so that's a uh, um, um, that's a, uh, an interesting development, and that the fact that and the reason why I think this is really funny is that uh, I bet you a dollar that there are some districts around, probably that are not using uh, eight inch uh, floppy disk. But um, I, I, I talked with some folks before that, for example, had an old mainframe computer that's running the check writing software that they purchased in 1986, and you know it still is interfacing, it's still writing checks. They have to order off to get the right uh, ribbon for the printer that does the check printing, yada, yada, yada. But um, 
Uh, that's uh, I thought that was an interesting phenomenon. Uh, well, I said I never told you this, but my friend Mike taught at a middle school in Helena that had recently had a 50-year uh, employee retire. He was a teacher in the district, and he left behind a working lab of Apple IIEs uh, that were still up and running. Entire lab full of Apple IIEs that he had. Oregon Trail, baby. So. Oregon Trail. Whoa, yep. that that's a serious. That's like school. a time a time ca- a functional time capsule. So. Yeah. Wow. Yep. Very hey, much well, so. There's a, a, a example of the ROI of Apple technology, right? How, <laughs> how many how many years did they get out of that investment? That's amazing. Yeah. Very much so. Cool. All right. We want to do do uh, well. We're we just about got it. I, I moved my my last article to inspiration for Geek of the Week. So. Okay. Well, let me start with mine. It's really quick. Um, uh, one more thing from Google IO that's interesting. Uh, Google will release their modular cell phone in the next year, first to developers and then to consumers. Um, it's project Aura from Google and it will be a cell phone that allows you to create something like a desktop machine and then you can switch parts in and out of the cell phone so that you can create what's important to you inside the cell phone package. And the reason why that I think this is so interesting is because um, I have always thought personally, and this is something that Apple's gotten right, uh, because they've not been super hyper on the iPhone about cranking up the resolution like Android phones have been, which I think saves on battery life. And that's what my greatest wish would be, is that a fast, modern Android phone with a relatively low resolution screen to save on battery life. So what I'm hoping to do is at some point be able to put together a Project RS cell phone from Google that maxes out on RAM, that maxes out on storage space, that maxes out on processor, but has a nice, uh, low resolution screen, um, 720p would be just fine for me, um, that I could utilize to have great battery life and a fast, uh, responsive phone. So Project Aura coming soon from our friends at Google. Awesome. And, um, my geek of the week is the National Week of Making is coming up June 17th through the 23rd, 2016. You can find out about that on weekofmaking.org. The reason I found out about that is because I actually nominated my wife to be a White House champion for change for making. Um, we, we, we learned about this flying back from Chicago. I don't, there's like over 400 people nominated. They're picking 10. So I don't, she's probably not going to be selected, but, uh, it will be kind of cool because we learned about it on the flight. The deadline was going to be after we landed. So I had to buy Wi-Fi on the flight and then, you know, wrote the, the nomination paragraphs there. But hey, whether or not she is, we all need to be champions for change in our community. And this national week of making is pretty cool. It's, you know, whatever you think of our president. I'm very, very happy, uh, that, we're having an emphasis on STEM education, coding, and making, and President Obama has definitely done, I think, some great advocacy, uh, visible advocacy on that. And uh, I put a related inspiration. I just saw this article today and then listened to almost the whole podcast. I'm going to finish listening to it right tomorrow. Um, it's in Ed Surge. The maker movement isn't just about making and electronics, and that was an interview with Mitch Resnick, who is one of the godfathers of coding and at the MIT Media Lab and the Lifelong Kindergarten Group and definitely, I think, one of the most important voices for educational change uh, overall and as particularly as it pertains to, you know, coding, making and, you know, the imagination loop and trying to make school more engaging and worthwhile. But, you know, in a good kindergarten class, you're going to have lots of making, lots of choice, lots of collaboration. That's what the Lifelong Kindergarten Group wants to promote. So we can maybe do our part of promoting more awareness about making by hosting some kind of an event or just telling people about the national week of making and then making something right, make it and share it. Even that small little act is a, is a positive and potentially powerful thing for ourselves and for others. Great. Thanks Wes. So, um, uh, let's go ahead and shut her down. Uh, this is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 11. We're glad you could join us tonight. You can find tonight's links at edtechsr.com slash links, where you can also find past episodes of the podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. You can subscribe to us on uh, wherever you uh, 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 
aggregate finder podcast uh, in your life. And we're also on the name of the podcast app that I submitted to a couple weeks ago that Stitcher, I forgot. Stitcher. Stitcher. There you go. You can find us on Stitcher. Um, if you're so inclined, go ahead and, and, and review us on iTunes and help us get out to more people. Um, same true with giving us the thumbs up in Stitcher. Or uh, if you are on any podcast app where there's a rating involved, please feel free to let others know about our little podcast. So my name is Jason Neifer. I am the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy in fabulous Missoula, Montana. And Wes, close us out. All right. And I am wearing my Thunder shirt. I've been monitoring the game. There's five minutes left and it looks like uh, the Thunder or may lose. So if it's if it's taken to the next game, I I have to. <clears throat> uh, well, we've figured out how to get how to how to get the game for the groom in our chapel. So anyway, uh, excitement here in Oklahoma City. I I do live in Oklahoma City. I am uh, W Fryer on Twitter. You can find my blog at speedofcreativity.org, and I am hopefully continuing to be a learner and a maker and uh, enjoying. Teaching in different contexts, even though I'm a tech director now. And, uh, I'm actually looking forward this summer to a Minecraft camp, which sold out or not sold out. It's, it, it, uh, filled up in record time working with a local nonprofit, uh, promoting coding. And so we're doing a Minecraft challenge day. And yes, Minecraft is like dynamite when you talk to kids about it. So my daughter, now that school is out, is probably going to spend our youngest, uh, an inordinate amount of time playing Minecraft and I will voluntarily be roped into some of that as well. So thank you all for tuning in. We are normally here on Wednesday nights and we will hopefully be back on Wednesday night, but you know what? Life intervenes sometimes and uh, they're not paying us any more or less depending on the day of the week or, or how frequently we're, we're doing this. So we appreciate you being here and I encourage you to share the show and definitely give us feedback. Thanks to all the feedback that we got tonight from Peggy and from Nick. And we would love to hear from you. So reach out to us on Twitter or another way, and we will uh, try to integrate whatever ideas or suggestions you have into a future show. Thanks. Okay.